Welcome to Rethink Retail, the show where we dive into the stories and strategies behind some of the most successful brands on the planet. From brick and mortar giants to e-commerce disruptors, we uncover the secrets to their success and deliver the keys to true retail transformation. So ask yourself, are you ready to rethink retail? The future of retail starts now. Welcome to Retail Therapy, a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast series where we examine retailers that have a unique history, are making innovative changes to their business model, or are overcoming challenges in order to stay relevant in this highly competitive landscape. This week, we will be looking at a brand born in the UK from humble beginnings as a garage startup, but quickly skyrocketed to global prominence in the fitness apparel world. Renowned for its sleek designs, innovative fabrics, and a strong connection with its community, it has masterfully blended the realms of gymwear and streetwear. By fostering partnerships with influential fitness personalities and leveraging social media platforms, this brand has cemented its position as a cult favourite among fitness enthusiasts worldwide. That's right, this week we're investigating Gymshark. Checking in for today's session are this week's retail therapists, Carl Boutet, Andrew Smith and Melissa Minko. Carl is a Montreal-based retail strategist, keynote speaker, university lecturer and executive advisor who travels the world studying the latest consumer trends with a focus on emerging technologies and new business models. Andrew is co-founder and managing partner of Think Uncommon, a unique retail strategy consultancy The focus is on building strong innovation foundations in a retailer's people and processes. Melissa is Director of Retail Strategy at CINT, a global digital solutions provider for some of the world's largest retailers and companies. At CINT, she is responsible for unearthing key consumer shopping insights and emerging industry trends in order to lead strategic sales and client engagements. She's a retail futurist, whose methodology is rooted in cross-industry behaviours and innovations. Okay then, guys, so welcome and thank you for joining in. Uh, Gymshark is a fascinating brand, uh, one that's grown really quickly in recent years and has gained huge prominence, uh, particularly around Ben the Rona. Um, Let's start with you, Carl. In what ways do you think has Jim's sort of youth and fresh perspective allowed it to disrupt what is a fairly traditional fitness apparel market? I don't know if it's disrupting. I don't. I'm not sure it's an all unique formula. I believe that you know it starts with community, and that's clearly what they keyed into. And I'll just share quickly the personal story I have around Gymshark being in London with uh, my 17 year old in April and uh, walking down Regent Street. I mean, if there was one place he wanted to be and go visit, was the Gymshark Gymshark store that I'm sure we'll get back to later. But why is that relevant? Being a Canadian here in Montreal. We don't have Gymshark. Mm. Yet, he knew all about the brand. (laughs) He's seen it in the gym. The cool kids are wearing it, the ones that are really the workout enthusiasts, without there being, you know, the closest store being basically in London and and not being available in any sportswear location here in Canada. So I was really surprised and shocked that the brand awareness was so high. And I think that speaks a lot around what has set it apart or at least given it the momentum it, it has right now. 
Thank you. Thanks, Carl. And what's your take on how Gymshark sort of started and gained such a quick prominence in the marketplace? Yeah. So I was actually wearing Gymshark back in 2014. So just kind of two years after they were founded, I was a certified personal trainer for a little while. So I was very kind of embedded in the community and aware of what the big apparel trends were. And that was really when they were taking off and especially kind of gaining traction in the bodybuilding community here in the U.S., I think they've been really strategic about the influencers that they've chosen to promote their brand and represent their brand. They're really smart with that. And then also their designs. They've always had such an eye for design that focus on the streetwear aspect and the desire to wear fitness apparel outside of the gym is something they were super clued into in the very beginning. So I think those two aspects are really key to what's allowed them to just continue to grow for quite a long time. Brilliant. Thanks. And Andrew, do you agree with Carl? Do you see them as a disruptor or do you see them as just recognizing a niche in the marketplace? I see them as a disruptor in in a sense. And I think Melissa probably hit on it. Their blending of the fashion worlds and and the collision of the fashion worlds, I think, is incredibly unique and interesting. But the, the way that they've, you know, skyrocketed to this level of success has really come from um, knowing their customer better than probably any brand that I've seen in a long time. Like they, they have got their gym junkie marketing persona absolutely nailed. Um, they know exactly who they're talking to and they know exactly how to talk to them. Um, and you can see it and it comes through in, in any channel that they're doing it, even the store. Um, it's just so incredibly well represented. So I think they have definitely seen an opportunity. Their timing was also pretty good and uh, and innovated in a, in a unique way around the style. But that all, for me, comes down to the fact that they knew exactly who they were pitching to. Yeah, I think that makes a big difference. Knowing your audience is critical. I think it plays a big part in, in sort of Nike's success as well in, in that ability. And it's interesting that several of you pick up on the, that transition from the gym to the street as well, which gives you the huge opportunity then to, to sort of just grow beyond that core niche audience and become mass market. Now, they were famously one of the first brands to engage with influencers on social media. I mean, Carl, what, what, what do you think helped them there in that ability to engage with that audience by using some of the athletes? And how do you see them applying that in the growth of their business? Well, I think they just saw the social and that was what it was early days as an extension of the regular community. My understanding is they really gained prominence by showing up at these, these fitness conferences, right? And started sort of showcasing there and, and that social media at that point was just sort of an extension or a, a soapbox to speak on and, and to try to build more momentum as uh, as the platforms were gaining popularity. So I don't know if it was really a strategy or maybe to Andrew's point earlier about just good timing, you know, just being at the right place at the right time as the media was surfing. Because I was actually thinking, Andrew, on the timing piece at first, I was like, I mean, powerlifting's been around, you know, very popular since the 70s. And for those of you who are familiar with the Venice Beach whole era in California, I mean, <laughs> why didn't it take off there? Why didn't other brands key in on that? Because that sector has been popular since then. Why did Gymshark, you know, key in on this and build this moment? And, and to your point, Ian, probably social media, the timing around it, it you know, social media by, by 2014, when Melissa was wearing it, it, was already pretty well on its way, but it was really starting to kick off and, and, and become much more than what it was 10 years before. So it became the platform yeah. to own and they had the credibility. They, they saw they had the right people, at least in the UK market, and then I guess the US pretty quickly afterwards. So I think that's the timing piece 
and to stand out at a time when, you know, let's face it, this industry is a duopoly. I mean, it's Nike, Adidas, and even Adidas is sort of a, a distant mm-hmm. second now. And I'm, you know, my concern is, are they going to become the next Under Armour? Because as they're trying to say, get that mass popularity, it's really, really tough to, to set yourself apart. But Nike is the original gangster in this place. They, since Prefontaine, have known about influencer marketing and how to key into those yeah. those sort of truths and the, the, the that the or the legit, legitimacy that, that that the truths bring from these athletes. So hope for them that it's going to continue and and they're going to figure out ways to keep that engagement going. But it's it, it moves on. Ask the people at Under Armour. It moves on. You, you move very very quickly from the cool new cool kid on the block to yesterday's news, and that's going to be the big challenge here, especially on social media. Sunrise Technologies is an award-winning Microsoft Dynamics 365 partner for retailers. Microsoft is the only major cloud business application provider who's also a retailer, so they understand the unique challenges of today's retail landscape. When you think about the cloud for retail, think Microsoft. And when you think Microsoft, think Sunrise. Learn more at sunrise.co forward slash retail. That's sunrise.co slash retail. I agree. So, so Melissa, you mentioned that you, you were actually living and breathing this brand, you know, up oh, to sort well, of yeah. nine years ago. So how did you sort of experience that effect they were having with things like influencer marketing? Were, were you witnessing it? Were you consuming it? Were you involved in sort of helping sort of drive it forward? I was consuming it because they were really providing value. They would leverage their influencers to do things like meal prep videos and training videos to teach their followers how to make the most of their gym sessions. So they were always wearing the gear, but it was really about the actual content and it was valuable to be watching it at that time, especially when bodybuilding was still kind of getting off the ground for younger generations. And uh, there was kind of like a science-backed approach that a lot of these influencers were taking and really trying to optimize their time in the gym. And Gymshark was one of the main brands who was in the background of all of those conversations in that peak era for the bodybuilding community. And I guess, Andrew, that that sort of immersing yourself into your target audience lifestyle is is a key part to building a sense of community. And what's your take on how Gymshark did that? I think the, the, you know, Melissa's point around the value of the content was everything. Like it wasn't an overt, aggressive, like in your face marketing strategy. They didn't hire influencers to just talk about how good they look and, and what they love about the designs. They were just genuinely adding value. But all of their content has forever had their end users value in mind. So whether they're generating something through an influencer or whether they're doing it in their pop-ups, which, you know, garnered quite a a lot of traction for them early on to then of, of course things like their stores it's it's living and breathing that lifestyle so it's taking that marketing persona and actually you know using it for you know making it useful for the brand itself but by making them useful to their end users so it's you know if you ask people why they're in love with Gymshark you know, fashion is part of it but it's probably third or fourth on the list it's it's the how it helps me be better at the gym it helps give me knowledge about you know new techniques or what I have to do around the gym session for it to actually work it makes me laugh I have fun. Like the jokes land with no, the, their social media is is hilarious and pretty aggressive too. So it's kind of like a, you know you either you either love it or you're definitely not going to be following it. Um, so you know they've just really honed in that persona and the ability to do that across a team of now you know over 300. I think I saw that they've got you know working for the brand now. 
you know, it's it's easy enough to see how that can happen when it's just the founder who's just kind of putting their own personality into the into the brand. But to be able to kind of scale it like they have over the decade yeah. of their lifestyle is is really impressive. And and it's going to be important as they go into the future, especially as we see, you know, the influence of influencers minimizing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Theirs is different. I think theirs is is actually, you know, so much more valuable that I think they can probably keep that momentum going. Yeah. So, Carl, do you think that they can hold on to that sort of, it's almost like you say, the homely founder principles that are now extended into what is a big global business? You know, do, do you think they can hold on to that? Because I know they've opened a, a business base in the US to sort of support that. You know, how easy is it in your experience sort of keep those initial almost naive values of a starter when you're now operating in multiple countries and, and it's growing way beyond him and, and his garage. Well, I hope that the leadership team there has studied from cover to cover little black stretchy pants because I think this <laughs> the Chip Wilson, Lululemon story could be very inspirational to them in terms of the do's and don'ts. Because I, I mentioned, you know, I paralleled them off of Nike and Adidas and Under Armour before, but if they're smart, I think they'll probably follow more the Lululemon playbook and really try to play, you know, try to really stay core to a community and add value without trying to spread too broad. It's very tempting. And we saw that even Lululemon making some moves, which I still consider interesting into technology like mirrors and things like that. But the reality is the core is the yogi for them and the core for Gymshark is the lifter. So they need to make stay true to that and not dilute. It's interesting because I was just looking up to sort of another parallel and maybe be interesting to get Melissa's take on this probably better than most of us to, to give. But I see a lot of parallels with Glossier. I mean, I think they, you know, the Emily Weiss story is sort of a similar one where you start with a community, you build a rapport. It doesn't start with product necessarily. It starts with resonating around common values and then bring the product to the equation, which is different than the other stories I've told you, including Lululemon, which all started with a product differentiation. So Maybe that's the playbook, too, that they need to, or the combination of two, which is the modern recipe. But you're right, Ian, the big challenge right now is you need to, you know, you want to be large enough to have scale to be able to compete and be able to build the supply chains. You need to remain relevant. At the same time, you want to, you don't want to dilute yourself to a point where you're sort of irrelevant, which I have some concerns. I mean, things I'm hearing, I've been asking around since I know we were going to record this, and it already feels like it's a lo- losing a bit of its luster, at least for that sort of peripheral group. I think the core enthusiast is still there and they still get it. Mm. But I think there's a, there's always going to be something new and cool that's going to come along and to resist that is always a yeah. huge challenge. Yes. So yeah, Melissa, you know, we'll keep deferring to you because you, you live to breathe the brand as a consumer <laughs> and a fan, you know, early adopter, you probably qualify us as well. You know, what, what's your take on how they're, they're, they're growing, particularly you will use US as their ex- international expansion. Uh, and it's, it's an area that you'll know well, as well as knowing the product. What's your take on how they're going about this sort of growth into the US market? Yeah, what was interesting was even in their beginning, they did select a lot of American influencers to represent the brand. And I think that's really how it made its way here so quickly. I thought it was interesting in a lot of the articles I was reading how they kind of said that they're still trying to grow more in North America and really build that footprint. But I've always felt a really strong presence from the brand here. But I think that's also because if you are in that fitness community, then you have that awareness. So kind of goes back to what Carl was saying as well is they're at this really important inflection point that they have to be very careful with, which is they could go more mass market and they could branch way further outside of the bodybuilding community. But 
if they do that, they will dilute the brand and its core values. And I do see them as more of a niche player in the fitness space. I actually wouldn't compare them to a Nike or an Under Armour. They have a couple competitors that are a little bit more their size and started around their time. And that's directly who I would compare them to. And then outside of category, I agree with Carl. I would go with more of a niche values-based brand that has a cult-like following versus more of a mass brand where people will buy you know, a lot of people will buy Nike, they'll buy Under Armour, they'll wear Adidas, they'll put all of them together. Typically, yeah. if you are a Glossier fan, you're not buying other products in the category that you have Glossier products. And I think that's kind of similar with Gymshark. If you're buying mostly Gymshark apparel, you're probably not buying their core competitors because you really resonate with their brand values. You identify with them and you want to continue to send the message that that's your brand of choice. Fair enough. Do, do you agree, Andrew? I do, and I think I, I think that you know they were very specific in choosing Denver when they came to the US to kind of you know highlight that they're still here, that this is important to them, that they they deliberately chose to go to the home or at least a respected home of everyone who's in their grouping. I definitely think their biggest risk is going to be trying to expand too quickly and potentially go out of their core part, like their core product, their um, their core core user especially with PE money. You know, they've got that private equity investment there and they're going to, you know, with expansion comes cost. And of course, that will come an awful lot of pressure from a private equity firm who's used to seeing big zeros on the checks. So it's going to be interesting how they manage that temptation to try and chase a profit to please, you know, a potential private equity or even future investment if they seek it. Because it will be there. It'll be discussed around the board table. And I just hope that they, you know, I th- I think, you know, to Carl's point earlier, there's lots of stories written in the wind that could potentially inform them in in trying to avoid that temptation. But they've got a really incredible base too. Like they've got, you know, half a million YouTube subscribers that keep watching and consuming their content, which is nearly a third of what Nike has globally. Um, and yeah. if you compare them in the DTC kind of cult DTC space, Allbirds has about 3,000. So like there's this phenomenal kind of audience, captive audience that they still keep. And if they stay true to what they want and, and what the, that end user is is getting from the brand, I think they'll continue yeah. to grow. But in saying that, the US is still, I think I saw a quote from from the founder, it's half a percent or so of market share in the US, but it's 50% of their global earnings. So it's like there's a tremendous opportunity for growth, if even just within that core market. Yes. I mean, I can't help thinking they're at, they're at a, like a, an important stage because I, I always admired Ben Francis, the founder. He installed an expert CEO and I think he was there for six years, I think. And, and I thought, you know, he part, there was no ego there. It's like I've grown and, OK, I have this vision and it's now become a proper business. You know, can't sit, can't sit in my grandma's spare bedroom, I think, was where he was when she taught him how to sew and things. It's bigger. And to have that sense of understanding and vision to employ an expert and learn. But he's now back in charge. This guy's handed the baton over and go, right, Ben, you're ready to go. You got the PE funding. You're now in the US. You're with the big boys now. So so I think, you know, he's got to put the long pants on now. And, and, and you, how many more metaphors I can do in back? <laughs> I was going to say there's pun central going on right now with us. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll quit while I'm almost ahead. And, and but, but you know, it's, it's like this is the next stage now because, like you say, private equity are writing that check and they're sitting there going, 
right, where's my cash? Uh, and he's moving to new markets. And the, the business and retail world is littered with British brands that are being huge here and try and have a look at Tesco's and God knows how many other retailers that go, we've got this sus. So it's going to be difficult. I mean, what's your take on how they should approach the US car? Do you think they're building it in the right way? Or do you, do you see other unforeseen challenges that may challenge them? No, no, there's definitely a lot of headwinds in, in this space, the competition. I mean, I know we like to think that they, or they probably like to think of themselves not competing with the big players and their, their niche and they have a captive audience. The reality is just step into any gym. Not that I do that that often, quite honestly, but I, from what I hear, uh, they... Uh, we defer to Melissa exactly. for that, mate. don't worry. We defer to her for that. But, you know, you'll see, if you look at 10 people working out, you'll probably still see over half of them wearing Nike or Adidas, right? So if not, if not three quarters. Yeah. So for them to pretend that those aren't competitors, that's really scary. And, and coming back to the little black stretchy pants story, I mean, that was something as well that Lululemon was pushed to the side by the Nike people saying, hey, this is so niche. It's not something that we even should be, decide, needs to be on our radar. And then lo and behold, yeah. it becomes this big brand that now they're paying lots of attention to and is, <laughs> I'm sure, very much on their radar at, in every meeting. Um, so all that yeah. said, and, and so the U.S., I mean, the U.S. is it's a massive market. It's a super saturated market. I'll give you a weird parallel, but it's in the sporting space, too, that I think speaks to the how high the competition is in the space. And Melissa can speak to it even more than I, but Decathlon, the largest world sporting good retailer, pulled back from the U.S. They went in, they dipped their toe in the water, and they said, that's it, I'm getting the fuck out. They basically partnered with Dick's Sporting Goods. You know, that that's the market you're entering where they're, like, killing it everywhere else. Like here in Canada, yeah. they're doing super well. They're expanding like crazy. Mexico, Latin America, they mean Asia, you name it, Africa. I mean, there's there, all the places that everybody else is, is scared shitless to go. They go full throttle, and then, but they come into the U.S., yeah. they do, like, they open five stores and say, whoa, okay, and they're the biggest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. fully vertically integrated. So that just tells you how competitive the U.S. market is. And to Andrew raised a really important point and the one that I think we often forget because we're so focused on the front end and the go-to-market piece. But the what is what is what is the financial sort of model behind the scenes that's pressuring them? And private equity is scary. I mean, they can, you know, they, so yeah. I, I, my understanding would be that they're really vying for some IPO at some point. There's going to be a ton of pressure to get to deliver some metrics, especially on the top line. And, and that's not always healthy and it sort of forces them into places they might not want to otherwise go. So hopefully they have the discipline, Ben and team have the discipline to manage those waters. Hopefully the private equity firm is very much aligned with the values and under, they came in very clearly exp, exp, expressing yeah. what those needs were. And, and it's not going to put them in a place where they're going to overextend and then invent, you know, eventually collapse on themselves like we've seen with a lot of other direct-to-consumer brands since they've listed, right? So let's, let's use yes. those warnings as well. Blue Yonder is the world leader in retail digital supply chain transformations and omnichannel commerce fulfillment. Our end-to-end -end cognitive business platform enables retailers and logistics providers to best fulfill customer demand from planning through delivery. With Blue Yonder, you can unify your data, supply chain, and retail commerce operations to unlock new business opportunities and drive automation, control, and orchestration to enable more profitable, sustainable business solutions. Blue Yonder, fulfill your potential. 
It's interesting. I mean, I was fascinated by the statistics you came up with there, Andrew, in that you've got half percent market share in the US. I mean, Melissa is someone who's probably more closely associated emotionally as well as financially <laughs> with the brand. You know, what's your thought? Do you, I mean, because I reckon they could probably make an awful lot of money growing that to one and a half percent market share without diluting the brand. I mean, what's your view on how far they should try and get into that US market? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely room, as we've acknowledged statistically. I think a pop-up store strategy or a store within store, some sort of collaboration would be the most strategic way to do it and to align with another brand that overlaps with their core audience. Because I think the best strategy for them is more a penetration strategy than necessarily an audience expansion strategy. Because if they do go to mass market, they will lose their appeal to this core bodybuilding audience who I think will feel a little bit betrayed in a way and and no longer represented through the brand. Maybe they won't see themselves in the brand as much. So that's my take is there's definitely room for it. It's for sure something they should do. They should continue to leverage the U.S. influencers that they've built such strong partnerships with. They even have collaborations with some of these influencers for their own kind of limited ranges. And if they keep doing things like that, a lot of those influencers have a very broad reach, but it's still mostly the community that Gymshark originally tried to appeal to. So there's definitely room for them to continue to grow in the U.S. It's just they have to be so careful with how they do it. Yeah. I mean, what's your take on that U.S., Andrew? You'd obviously highlighted their market share. Where do you think they should go? If, If You know, obviously now they've got that pressure and obligation from the PE investment. What do you think they should do with all those dollars? I think Melissa made a wonderful point, which is like that core element of the product is actually if I wear it as a badge, like I'm, I'm in the club if I'm wearing this thing. And if I suddenly see it everywhere, it loses that. And so it, it is going to have to be a very carefully trodden path to growth, I think. But in terms of execution strategy, I think they can't, they won't be able to go high cost, I don't think. So pop, you know, buying, re, buying up real estate or um, getting a giant rent bill to, to, be on every street corner is obviously not going to be in their future. Pop-up's definitely smart. Partnerships with gyms is obviously another option that they could look at. There's phys- lots of physical space in gyms. No one needs another smoothie bar. So I think we could probably go in that in, in that, that way. I think that would be smart for them, especially if they do it with the right partner because that will help them um, grow a little bit more mm-hmm. too, get all the, the uh, personal trainers in their gear, that kind of stuff. So I think there's lots of ways to do it. But, you know, at the end of the day, continue to build up brand awareness is going to just be everything. There's no, yeah. no, nothing wrong, especially with this, this style of gear to, to, to just grow direct to consumer and, and grow in this digital form in the U S until they can get enough coin in the bank to please the PE yeah. and, and then also, you know, expand in a, in a slightly different way. That's exactly where, where my mind was going to, I mean, in the era of collabs, I mean, and what all that, um, or extra space that these gyms have now. Mm-hmm. And as we're sort of, believe it or not, fitness is also going omni-channel, right? So it's that's another mm-hmm. really interesting move right now where the gym mm. and the house are integrating into each other and, and the home workout and the in-gym workout and, and the whole industry there is trying to navigate that. The whole fitness industry is trying to navigate that as well. So any sort of incremental mm. revenue opportunities and, and finding the you point out the right the right partnerships finding what are those fitness brands especially in the US and maybe beyond that that are that reflect our, our shared values and do some sort of collaborations with them would be for me would be the low hanging fruit right now that I'd be looking at and what Melissa said about doing pop-ups around that or doing activations that's something 
that we've seen more and more. The the yoga industry is really good at that. You know, yoga in the park sort of things. We have a brand in Montreal called Lole that did a thing called White Tours, where they would hold host these like thousand thousand people events in different places where people would do these massive yoga sessions. I mean, that's that sort of thing. And, and Jim works for that too. Maybe not dragging barbells through Central Park, but I mean, you want to have some sort of you could do some sort of community thing that would work perfectly without having to invest so much in, in commercial real estate. I agree. Well, we've avoided talking about their uh, store on Regent Street for long enough now. We may as well dive in. Um, what is your take on the physical store, Melissa, now? Because before they opened Regent Street, which I think was 30,000 square feet, well, it's 30,000 square feet square foot building. I don't know whether they used it all. But before that, they did two really interesting pop-ups just before that launch. Mm-hmm. One was a mindfulness barbershop for a week in, in East London uh, where you could go and talk. And, I lo- and again, I love that idea. That was about community. It wasn't about product. And then one of my favorites was in Camden Market, where it was like a market stall trader. Mm-hmm. And I think Noel Mack, their brand director, gave Ben Francis about 24 hours notice that he would be on this stall flogging cheap Gymshark stuff <laughs> uh, as, as like a market stall trader. And I thought there were very clever ways of building up to what was a completely different approach, was to position yourself on Regent Street, which is global flagship territory. Mm-hmm and launch this store. What's your take, first of all, on the location of the store and how, how they've sort of implemented that? I love it. I love a flagship. I love it when it's strategically placed. I think that is the right location for it. I definitely think having too many brick and mortar stores is, uninterest. it becomes uninteresting to the consumer. It feels oversaturated. This, again, is a brand that has a niche that it needs to maintain as carved out. And so keeping the footprint small but mighty really matters. And I I think it's brilliant. I think it's important, especially for the consumer who identifies so strongly with the brand values to be able to go into a physical space and see the brand. So I I think it uh, contributed to building a sense of community for the brand because you know when you're in that store, you're surrounded by like-minded people who are equally as passionate about this brand as you are. I'm a big fan of the decision. If they did a bunch, I wouldn't be a fan, but I like that they put their footprint there. Yes. I, th- I think physical touch points, you know, we, we even see the big online companies wrecking, you know, Amazon will open physical stores. They see the value of the physical touch point. What do you make of the Regent Street store, Andrew? And it was it was a big decision, I can imagine. It was debated a lot. And I think the way that they've executed it, see, I haven't been into it myself, but the like the way they've executed it by the looks of it from afar, I think is is the smartest way to do it, which is corner around like they've done with their content, right? It's a physical manifestation of their content strategy, which is we are living this lifestyle. This lifestyle is for us and, you know, come and join the club. So I think they've done that very cleverly. What they do next though with physical retail is going to just be absolutely fascinating. Do they become a brand that essentially operating gyms to get subscriber revenue? Like there's all of those things that are going to be debated at some point around the table and it'll be fascinating to see how they do it. But like Melissa, I can't see a future where they're going to be on every street corner uh, unless they do go down the pathway of something like phys- actual physical gyms. But um, but you know, in the meantime, thinking of very clever investment in retail pop-up is by far going to be, you know, the most important one. But I think it was a very interesting decision. And that, you know, what the Swiss shoe company that's just put, popped in next door as well, like the, that kind of flagship idea to get brand awareness is 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 really interesting because we I don't there's there's a lot of evidence that it can work, but there's not enough evidence yet to say that this is where we should, you know, all throw our future footprint strategies at. But again, so it's going to be very interesting. I agree. I mean, you know, Kyle, I've been 
Vocal's the wrong word. I, get, I gave a, a, an in-depth review of the store, and, and I felt from a design and communication point of view, it was deeply flawed. But from a community point of view, it's it's absolute genius. I mean, what, what was your take of the store? You, you took your son, who's also a brand fan. And likewise, I, I got my daughter to write part of my review because she's an absolute fan <laughs> of the brand. And I thought, I'm a middle-aged man who's never going to put on these Lycra leggings. So it's always nice to get a, a point of view from the end consumer rather than some old man who likes to talk about shops, you know? So the feeling I had, and I, I showed up there in a very specific moment where they were actually in the, just in the process of transforming the store into an event space, which was really what captured my attention yes. the most. So for those who haven't been, basically the whole racking system on the, that they hang the clothes on, on the main level can uh, get, can be retract uh, up into this, almost to the ceiling with the clothes still hanging on it. And then the whole f- main floor space becomes an event space. And they have a Joe and the Jew. No, I've, got, I've got to jump in here, Carl, right? Because I can see why that sounds exciting. You can lift all the clothes up and you can work out on the floor. 15 meters away is a workout room. Yeah, but it's not on the main so level. And why, it's not, it's not all glassed in. It's not for all of everybody walking up and down Regent Street to see. Um, so for me, and listen, I think what I, the answer I'm going to give you, and it probably feeds into your reflection, is when they designed this space, I think they designed it as an event and, and sort of uh, activation location more than they designed it as a store. Yeah. I think they wanted, that was when they, when they gave the brief to the, whichever firm ended up designing, they said, we want this to work better for hosting. And I think it's kind of smart in today's day and age because we keep coming back to the same paradox. What's the purpose of the store? And if it's to sell product, well, there's other channels for that. Yes, we want to complement yes. it. We want to make sure that it supports that. But they're they're a digital native brand, so you know the, the extension yes. of the physical location for them, for their first reflex. And you told us about sort of the pop ups they did just prior to that. I think is speaks to that in volumes. Is it's more of a it's it's yeah. a marketing play. It's not. It's I don't I don't know if it's a productive space for them. I don't know if they're actually doing getting any ROI. It's clearly uh, a marketing. I, I heard they're selling a push target. They're selling above above targets, and I've visited a dozen times, and it is always busy, yeah. you know. And, and I, I was I was critical, and, I, and it created quite a backlash. But I wasn't critical of the strategy; it was the communication in the store. And, and like you say, you could there's a there's a gym space, and there's you can than, work out. There's, there's a workout. Two gym spaces. Private. There's two gym spaces. Yeah. So. So there's a lot there is a lot of space, and I hope they use it because when I saw that rig that lifts the product up. I thought most brands do stuff like this, and then it's gathering dust within six to nine months. I like to think that Gymshark will use that space properly. And, it, and I was fascinated to see, because this is a hugely successful online brand, having a go at physical space. And I was like, right, you're going to learn the difference between the two. And I think they have had some harsh lessons on the communication because their online communication hasn't translated well. But the engagement in the community has. I think that's been superb. Uh, you go in and it's full. The day I turned up, it was a shame. I had to leave at 5 p.m. because at 6 p.m., Ben Francis was turning up to lead a 5K run around central London. Now, that is the classic, that sense of occasion and all the online content starting from the physical store. And that's where I hold my, take my hat off and go, you guys know this stuff. And there were hundreds of people following Ben. It was like that scene from Forrest Gump when he was running <laughs> around the US, you know, almost Messiah-like, you know, and it's really cleverly curated. I don't mean that as a criticism. I think it's brilliant using the store as a focal point to create huge media content that they then post online. 
you know, this is what I call the symbiotic retail at play. And I think it's great. But, but OK, Melissa, as, a, as, as we keep coming back to this, the huge, the huge <laughs> exponent of the brand, what would you like their next door to be and where would you like to see it? Oh, I do think their next door would have to be outside the UK. I think it... Yeah. I think it would be smart to, we mentioned Venice as that being kind of the Mecca of bodybuilding. Gold's Gym specifically is referred to as the Mecca. They could certainly be over there where, you know, their target audience is often training. Um, Yeah, I would lean more LA than New York, but I think it would have to be one of those major cities where there is that brand awareness already and extremely close proximity to a local fitness community there that can help kind of uh, you know, share the gospel if we're going with more religious analogies of Gymshark. But I also think they should use these stores to debut exclusive technology that maybe they're beta testing, you know, with different fabrics, or if they're just launching a really small batch of logos. Um, they, I mean, this, you know, these stores are location and destinations for their most loyal consumers. So those are the people that are going to be really excited about exclusive limited time product. And they are such an experimental brand. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they wanted to test certain things out with their consumers who, who care deeply about the brand as is and could kind of get their feedback in real time and leverage the store and the sense of community to collect that feedback. I agree. I mean, I, do you think it should be a flagship or more of a grassroots type of store? Because my instinct out there is like the, the first Nike live store that was in California, mm-hmm. which had, had a more of a hands-on in touch with local community. I can't help thinking that's the sort of thing that would work, where you're almost, you're not just creating content for the for their target audience, you're inviting the target audience in to be part of what the offer is. Agree. I, I mean, yeah, I think two flagships would be would feel maybe excessive and would go back to potentially bordering on brand dilution. So I think having a different role for a new store would also mean that, you know, people who have visited the UK store will want to visit the US store and see how it differs and supports a different type of concept for the brand. So I think they should kind of play together, but complement each other versus supplementing each other. Yeah. Because, I mean, we see Nike and they've got, what, five or six different store concepts in play at the moment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Andrew, what, what, do you, what do you think? What type of store would you like to see them to do next? Um, I would like them to be incredibly imaginative and come up with something yeah. weird and wonderful and go into a unique place that maybe wouldn't be expected because I think that's the, in line with the brand. Go where the yeah. people are rather than go where I'm going to, you know, get a core piece of media attention. Um, Obviously, they're in Denver, so they're going to have some kind of real estate investment in that space anyway and some people there. So who knows? They could do something that's that's there or around there. Um, The whole concept of – I've run a retail network that's had stores with with event spaces in it and um, cool concept, um, incredibly hard to execute consistently over long term. So uh, I would love for them to stay in London for just a little bit longer – to learn and gather data because I think making it so that, you know, in a year if they're still doing stuff that's exciting, that's going to get people to come to the stores, then they've, they've got the right recipe. If they are struggling to fill the space and, and the, the, you know, miracle racks don't go to the roof in some theatrical exciting way um, because they've never got anything to actually do yeah, in the I space, agree. then they'll, they'll learn something. If yeah. they're going no. to do it at all. Agreed. Let, let's, yeah, let's hope the PE people don't put time pressures on them. Um, 
Good, good luck with that. that. Be, it's, it's often I was going to say they'd be terrible PE people if they're not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's a shame. It's sort of the thing that attracts them in the first place is the thing that might then be sort of discarded for, mm-hmm. for the growth. So we've got one final question, which was sort of skirted around. But I'll start with you, Carl. Um, what sort of strategic changes or initiatives? would you prescribe for Gymshark in the near future? Well, it's funny, and because it's top of mind for me on a bunch of other things I'm working on at the, at the moment, but I find it strange if if they are targeting sort of a next generation fitness enthusiast, which they might not be. They might just be aging with that core demographic that's now moving into their probably 20s and 30s and whatever. But if I think of the younger generation, I'm not hearing anything around sustainability. Now, maybe I'm not getting the message, Yes. Um, but I, I'm Very a big true. believer in the flywheel and, and the fact that you need to have sort of the triple bottom line playing out. And, the, and I see the social. I think, you know, they, they're obviously promoting a healthy lifestyle and that's that's great. I see, you know, their financial sustainability, I'm you know pretty comfortable with uh, barring the whole PE pressure piece. I would like to hear something about what their their plans are. And I'm sure there are some and maybe they're downplaying it because they don't want to make that the center and they don't want to be called out on it. But that could be something that they maybe want to start thinking about just sort of integrating that because today it's sort of a value add, but very quickly it's going to become uh, sort of table stakes, which it might already be in some cases, especially yeah. in the fitness environment. And if you want to maintain margin as well. And most of that's true. I, I've not seen any reference to sustainability from the brand. Uh, but like you said, that may be very wise because I, I would hate to be a retailer at the moment trying to be sustainable with every smart arse and analyst picking fault with your sign, your delivery strategy, the material of your car. But if it was to, what you do with if your it was to start today, Ian, if we were 2023 starting a fitness brand, we would have to be, right? Like there's just no way we'd come out of the mm-hmm, gates yeah. without even this being part of the value proposition. They, they basically be, it would be the value proposition. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. they got away with it because they started just sort of before we all became, uh, you, know, you know, much more sensitive to it. But uh, but I think they're going to have yeah. to. I'm sure it's part of their strategy and they're working on it and they want to make sure that the fabrics and everything. Look, Lululemon isn't that either, right? So, and they're still doing fine. So Yeah. Yes, yes. Maybe it's a very, very wise strategy for them. How about you then, Melissa? What sort of initiatives and changes would you would you prescribe to Gymshark? I'd say ultimately they could expand into categories that are adjacent. So swim, I think, would make a lot of sense for them. And just maintaining the balance between design and then functionality, it, it would kind of allow them to still do both those things, but in a category where they would already have some credibility, I think, just because it is still kind of in the fitness space. Um, so I think that would be smart for them. I completely agree that they need to figure out sustainability. So it will just have to be something that they figure out. So I, I think, you know, a category that's adjacent to them, whether it is swim or opening their own few gyms could be a very cool thing. And then certainly sustainability. Those are the two routes I'd go for now. Cool. And finally, Andrew, do you have any recommendations for them short term? Yeah, I think the medium term is the smarter one. I think they've got some good organic growth. They've got a whole bunch of stuff happening in market that is about learning and really ascertaining what their future needs to look like in that, you know, across the the different spaces that they can operate in. Just keep doing experiments, keep experimenting with different ways of doing things, popping up in different places, collaborations with different designers to really dial up that kind of unique design element of the brand, continue with the value add of of the content game, because you know, if if you pour all of your attention into just ruthless expansion, you're going to dilute your core value, 
and the core value is yeah. what makes them famous. So try not as best as you possibly can to try and to, to lose focus on that core consumer and the core reason why you're actually, you know, respected and famous. I agree. Well, that brings us to the end of the conversation. Thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate you coming in and, and, and the really useful insight that you've considered for us as well. So uh, thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.